Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around Him, and the impact He empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Well, good afternoon. Wow, that was good. <laughs> that was great. Would you mind if I prayed for us? Just, I know Jen f- prayed a fabulous prayer. Uh, I just have a sense I'd like to pray again. Just for me, actually. Is that okay? Uh, Lord, thank you so much for your goodness to us. And pray that we would be able to hear your word to us. And that whatever's happening in our lives... Uh, in this room and in lots of other rooms, Lord, that we'd be attentive to you and what you're saying, and would you overwhelm us with your mercy and your truth and your grace to us. And pray that we would not miss what you have for us today. Amen. Well, it is great to be with you. My name's Andy. If we've not met before, I'd love to meet after, and it is not long to go now before we are in our home of our own. So well done for persevering at the awesome time of 1 p.m. on a Sunday in borrowed halls, and uh, it's like only the strong survive. So well done for persevering and making it thus far. Uh, Lots of details to come soon on timetables and things like that. Uh, So stay tuned. Um, And if you pray, uh, pray for uh, broadband to be hooked up to the building quickly. Believe it or not, that's important. Uh, And also, uh, we have an important meeting coming up Tuesday, so pray for that as well. If you wouldn't mind, uh, that'd be super, super helpful. All right, let's uh, stop talking about building woes and start talking about Mark's gospel. What could be more exciting than that? Uh, Last week, uh, and then this week again, we will be in chapter 8, verse 22, all the way to chapter 9, verse 1. Last week, we did verses 22 to 30 of chapter 8. Today, we're going to be in uh, chapter 8, verse 31, all the way to 9, 1. And as I said last week, these passages are... They're super important for the Gospel of Mark. So if you care about what we're doing, if you've been journeying with us through Mark's Gospel, like this is a really big deal, uh, these two weeks. They're the centerpiece of the Gospel, and they signal a huge transition point. And it's where Mark's theme of who is Jesus uh, is answered by Peter, who confesses him to be the Christ or the Messiah or uh, God's anointed royal deliverer. But then Jesus right away will begin to unpack what kind of a Messiah, what kind of a Savior he is, and how the disciples and how each of us are to follow him. And then the whole second half of the gospel is going to force the disciples and you and me to wrestle with not just who is Jesus, but how do we follow him on his way. And if you remember last week, we began with with the blind man going from blindness to partial sight and then full sight. It was a weird miracle of Jesus. It was in two parts. There was spit involved. It got crazy. Um, You can listen to it online if you missed it. Um, 
But a blind man goes from blindness to partial sight to full sight. And then the disciples go from spiritual blindness, not being able to see who Jesus is, to then seeing he's God's anointed deliverer. But today we're going to quickly see that it's only partial sight. As Peter, the disciples, they don't understand that Jesus isn't fitting into their expectations and hopes. Anybody ever have that happen to them? Well, that's the reason why we might be interested in these passages then. And they must follow him on his way. And then the rest of Mark's gospel unpacks all of this as it heads towards the cross. And it's there that the disciples, many others, and even us, only see Jesus clearly in true sight as we encounter him at the cross and resurrection. And we are invited by Jesus today to walk with him on the road towards Jerusalem and the cross. And you might be like, why does any of this matter? Well, we're all walking a road right now. We're all following something or someone or some idea that we think uh, is the good life or will lead us to flourishing. We're all doing that. Whether we realize it or not, we're doing that. And in the process of doing that, we're all becoming someone someone that impacts the world around us. If you don't think you're having an impact in the world around, of you, around us, then just ask somebody who loves you and is really close to you what your impact is, and they'll have some thoughts, no doubt. Um, and that impact uh, and that formation is something that exists far beyond what we understand. So we're all on a road, and we're all on a way. And today we're going to hear Jesus talk about his way, his road, and what it means to follow him. And he will claim it's the only way to find true life. And you may be here thinking, look, whatever, I've got some Netflix to watch, or I've got some Facebook to check, or I've got my agenda to pursue, and I've got about a thousand things that I think are more important than this, so why would I bother to listen? I guess I just would say sooner or later, we all have to face up to the fact that our lives build into something and the ideologies and institutions that we have trusted in for a long time are now shaky and uncertain. And the profound questions of life are still present amongst us if we will stop and let the annoying buzzes in our souls ask them, what is the good life? Who is a good person? How can I become a good person? How do I invest my life? What is emptiness and what is actually will bring me fulfillment? So today we're going to hear from Jesus about all of that and what it means to follow him in a chaotic and uncertain world. And we're going to hear some hard verses and we all will be confronted in some way. That can only be a good thing. So let's let Mark take us by the hand and lead us into deeper encounter with Jesus and deeper discipleship to Jesus as we walk on the way of Jesus with him in the way in which he chose and perfected and insists upon for his friends and his followers. So let's get into some straight talking. We're going to begin in verse, eight, uh, verse 31 to 33. He then began to teach them uh, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter, on behalf of the disciples, has just confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed deliverer. And right away, verse 31, it says that Jesus 
begins to teach them, but this time not in parables. If you remember through Mark, he's always, he's kind of talking in riddles and things like that. It's not hidden this time. And verse 32 says, he spoke plainly to him. And what he teaches them causes shock and alarm from his disciples. And he calls himself the son of man, which is Jesus' favorite term for himself in the gospel of Mark. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7, which I think a bit of Daniel chapter 7 will be flying up there soon. Maybe it will. Uh, And it describes a Messiah figure coming from God with authority to establish God's kingdom. But in verse 31 of chapter 8 in Mark, he says the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and must die and then rise again. Peter and his disciples, they're just, they can't even understand this. They're dumbfounded. And in their defense... Uh, no one within Judaism, you can search the rabbis and the writings and all this stuff and their own commentary about the Old Testament prophecies and scripture. No one within Judaism had ever connected suffering with the coming of the Messiah before Jesus did it. Even you might say for the Bible nerds amongst us, well, what about Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage? Well, they never connected that with the Messiah and they still don't. But Jesus does. And Peter and the disciples, they can't see. They're blind. They're blind to a Messiah who will conquer through suffering redemptively for the world. But this is only part of Peter's strong reaction. The other part of his strong reaction comes because not only has this never, like this is just like out of left field, couldn't possibly be true, um, but the other part is because of its implications for like him. And it gets to the heart of why he's following Jesus in the first place. And the heart of it for him and the heart of it for me and you is it's hard to follow a suffering Savior because it means we'll face rejection and misunderstanding and loss and suffering as well as we follow Jesus, the Messiah. See, some versions of Christianity today only want Jesus if it's a triumph. And it means you always have to be winning, always have to be growing, always appearing powerful, always have all the answers. And as soon as there's a trial or a challenge or a headwind, you know, it's like, what on earth is this? Or you're doing it wrong. If you just prayed the right prayer or went to the right conference or thought the right thoughts or just did something differently and found the right key for that lock, you know, you'd be winning again. We're supposed to be winners. We're not supposed to be weak. And nobody likes to be weak, right? You ever been sucked into that vortex? I have. But Jesus here preaches the gospel to the world, to his church, to us, that we follow a suffering Savior who is powerful and victorious and ruling and reigning and is returning in glory and is empowering his church. But the way, well, the way is the way of the cross. And so Peter takes Jesus aside. He takes him aside to rebuke him in verses 32 and 33. And this is actually a really strong confrontation. I don't know what you have in your mind, but I always had in my mind, like, uh, you know, when um, somebody takes the boss aside, you know, and says, look, boss, um, you might want, not want to say it that way, you know, and just clean that up a little bit, right? It's not like that at all. It's what it kind of seems like in our English translation. But the word for rebuke here is the same word that, in Greek that Mark uses when Jesus rebukes a demon. 
So this is Peter saying to Jesus, you are wrong. And you are very wrong. This is evil. This is not of God. Like, this is a, this is a huge confrontation. And Peter, or Jesus, rebukes Peter right back. And he says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, it's not me that's demonic, it's you. You're trying to keep me from suffering. You're trying to keep me from the road I must walk. You are in the way of the plans of God and get out of the way. Peter wants a different road. And he wants a different way. He wants Jesus on his road, walking his way. And verse 33 says, Jesus turned and looked at the rest of the disciples. So the picture is of Jesus' disciples walking behind. That was a traditional posture of uh, a disciple who would follow a rabbi. And Peter has kind of come up alongside or even in front of Jesus to rebuke him uh, because of the teaching that he doesn't agree with. And so they have their confrontation, and then Jesus turns and he puts Peter behind him and he faces the disciples. And that's how he says those words. He's saying to Peter, get out of my way. And he turns his back on him. We are on the way. We are on the way to Jerusalem. We are on the way to the cross and you are in my way. You need to get behind me and you need to follow me. So it's intense. It's intense confrontation. What about us? Are we in the way or on the way with what God has for us? I doubt what he has for you is literal crucifixion. But there are things in all of our lives that we have to, we have to surrender. We have to put to death. We have to let go of that are hindering us from walking in the way of Jesus. What might those be? They'll be different for all of us. If we're going to walk as his disciple, what attitude, what idol what desire, what habit, what preference, what refusal to act, what passivity, what belief is in the way. But remember this, rebuke does not mean rejection. We live in a world where I'm not loving you unless I agree with all of your choices, I never confront you, I never voice concern or my own real opinion unless I'm affirming whatever you feel is right for you in the moment. And you are not loving me and doing right by me unless you do the same. Can you recognize that from the water we just swim in around us? So in our context, conflict and rebuke mean rejection. But Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, that's all different. Rebuke doesn't mean rejection, and Peter is the best example of it. He gets a rebuke, and he gets redemption. And he ends up being a pillar of the faith that we are still talking about today. Where are we offended at a rebuke from Jesus and his word to us? And what if rebuke isn't a rejection? What if rebuke will lead to redemption and flourishing and the good life? What if we thought about that? Jesus tells him he has in mind human concerns, not God's plan. And twice in verse 31, uh, Jesus has said the Messiah must suffer. He must suffer. He says that twice. 
He's telling his disciples and he's telling us that this is God's road. This is God's plan. This is all in the plan. It must happen. And that he is willingly walking this road. And we can't understand Jesus uh, and life with him apart from the cross. That according to God's plan, Jesus willingly gave his life. Later on in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, couldn't resist looking ahead a little bit and throwing it up there. It says he gave his life as a ransom for many. See, the cross wasn't a victory for God's enemies. It wasn't a misstep. It wasn't a cruel, divine father taking out his wrath on a naive, divine son. It was God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working together to bring about salvation and defeat of sin, death, and the devil, and to open up a way for life in God's kingdom to anyone who wants it through faith in Jesus. And Jesus says it must happen. It must happen. Why must the Son of Man suffer? Well, I think we know the reason intuitively. And it's actually a hot-button topic right now in Western culture. Wrongness or sin or missteps, or brokenness, or whatever you want to call it, always creates a debt that someone must pay. You know, if somebody wrongs me, I have two choices. One is to try and make that person pay for what they did to me by seeking revenge, by obsessing over them, hoping and praying they fall into trouble, fantasizing about their downfall and suffering, or by actively contributing to it. You know, that's me uh, making or trying to make someone who's wronged me pay the price for that wrongness or sin or brokenness that affected me. And none of us have ever tried to do that, right? We live in Northern Ireland. <laughs> With walls in our city. The only other way is the long and hard row of forgiveness, real forgiveness, which doesn't mean necessarily we reconcile uh, with the person, uh, but it does mean placing the person or the people group or the whomever in the hands of God and canceling the debt that they owe. You're forgiven. You don't owe me anything anymore. Debt paid, debt canceled. Now, that doesn't mean you see them every day. It doesn't mean you spend the holidays with them. It doesn't mean you're best mates forever, but you do absorb the debt. You suffer and you forgive as you release them from the debt and as the Spirit empowers us. Somebody's always got to pay. Pastor theologian uh, Tim Keller says this, if we know that forgiveness always entails suffering for the forgiver and that the only hope of rectifying and righting wrongs comes by paying the cost of suffering, then it should not surprise us when God says, the only way I can forgive the sins of the human race is to suffer. Either you will have to pay the penalty for sin, or I will. Aren't we glad he paid the cost? And we're uncomfortable these days talking like this. We're uncomfortable these days with sin and brokenness and Jesus bearing our sin but as the world has stopped talking about it in these terms and has tried to do away with God and our theological roots, isn't our world struggling with what to do with sin and guilt and shame? What to do when people are wrong or we think they're wrong? And insisting that even small, when even small missteps are made, people pay for their sin. 
And whatever you think of cancel culture, it just shows, it just sets up a mirror to a society that is, that refuses to acknowledge God wrestling with what to do with sin and sinners and shame. It's like, well, God's not part of the picture, but what do we do with these things? Well, Jesus knows what to do with sin and sinners and shame. And he went to the cross and dealt with it. And he just might be the way to life and truth and peace and forgiveness and mercy for us and for society. So what does that mean for disciples like us? Verse 34, Jesus calls the crowd to him and and the disciples, it says. See, a wrong view of Messiahship or who Jesus is leads to a wrong view of discipleship. If we don't understand who we're following or where they're going, it's going to be a struggle, right? So Jesus is going to then tell them what they must do to be his follower and what we must do. And he just right away says three things. Deny deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Now, when he says deny yourself, he doesn't mean denial of things, like asceticism. Um, Like, you never get to enjoy life again. We all have to sell all our possessions and, like, live in a field or something like that. Never enjoy life. Give all your possessions away today. That's asceticism in the extreme and a vague giving something up for Lent in like the loosest sense of it, right? Uh, A theologian called Robert Stein uh, says this. It's not the denial of something, but of someone, oneself. It It requires the denying or saying no to the self as the determiner of one's goals, aspirations, and desires. So it's much more radical than giving up something for Lent or something like that. And then it's pick up your cross. Crucifixions were known all too well to those who were listening to Jesus in the midst of this teaching. It was a common tool of the Romans. It was an image of death and shame and horror. It was reserved for revolutionaries and slaves and the worst of criminals. It was meant to dehumanize and to shame and, to, and it was meant for maximum cruelty. And not to mention, the first recipients of Mark's gospel were Christians in Rome. And they were undergoing persecution. And they had seen plenty of crosses. They had seen Peter himself crucified upside down in Rome. And they would have probably seen some of their friends and family on crosses themselves for following Jesus. So... This verse, as they went over it again and over and over in this gospel, would have been a comfort to them that the cross wasn't a sign of God's abandonment. Even Jesus suffered so I can stay faithful to him in my suffering. And I don't think it's a guarantee of martyrdom, so we can all relax, Uh, but I think it's a picture of the disciples following Jesus no matter what and a total identification uh, with him and his way. And then the third thing for the disciples from this little verse is to follow me. So deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. And in the original languages, the first two commands are in a verb tense uh, that suggests a decision made in the past. And I know your eyes are glazing over and verb tense is in Greek and what's the point, but just stay with me. Uh, So the first two, uh, um, deny yourself, pick up your cross. Those are like referencing a decision made in the past, like I decided that a long time ago. Okay? So it's like a, a decision, right? Uh, but follow me is in a verb tense that commands continual action into the future, like continually follow me. And why would we want to do this in the first place? Well, in verse 35, Jesus starts to talk about that. 
why. He talks about our life. Uh, the, and the, the Greek word there means everything that makes us us. We might say our soul, right? Or the core of our existence that isn't limited by time and space was the definition I read this week that I really liked. Uh, Jesus is getting at what are we building our lives upon? If we're trying to save ourselves by protecting our lives or keeping the rules expected of us or by being true to ourselves or living our best life and throwing caution to the wind, all of those are just different efforts at saving ourself. And he warns us that if that's what we're doing, we are in danger of losing it all. But paradoxically, if you are willing to build your life or identity on Jesus and follow his way, it seems like you're losing your life, but actually you're on the path to true life. And then he goes on in verse 36 and 37 there, there Jesus warning us about the emptiness of reaching for the whole world and everything it has to offer as the source of our salvation and happiness and hope. Uh, a Roman emperor uh, called Lucius Septimus Severus, he, uh, there's the years he lived, said this, I have been everything and everything is nothing. A little urn will contain all the remains of one for whom the whole world was not enough. He was Roman emperor. He was the most powerful man in the world. His footprint is significant on what we would today call Great Britain. I have been everything and everything is nothing. What good is it to have everything but lose our soul? Jesus says, give your life away like I do as you follow me and you will truly have life. Not just good, fulfilling life now. Jesus is also speaking of life in the kingdom of God, which has no end. Theologian uh, called James Edwards says, it takes the word of Jesus to teach the infinite worth of the human soul, and he alone is sufficient to preserve it. Not following the way of Jesus, not choosing his road, Jesus tells us that has profound risk. He said, your soul, your life has such profound, profound value. Nothing can compare. You can pay nothing for that. But if you give it away, for my sake, you will truly find it. He's saying only he is the way, the truth, and the life, and only he is the gate into the kingdom of God and the Father's house. Only he is the bread of life and the living water and the hope of salvation. You, your soul, again, infinite worth. It was worth Jesus going to the cross. There is nothing that we can pursue or give in exchange. And Jesus, God's son, as Mark wants us to believe, is the only one worthy of bearing its weight. He gives us even more, verse 38, on why pick up the cross, and it's some of the most bracing language in the Gospel of Mark. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. He's clear. He's looking for faithfulness now. He's looking for faithfulness now amidst the blindness of those around him. And he gives, he is giving a warning that when he returns, he's returning not in humility, but in glory as the king. 
And to those who are ashamed and walk away now, he will be ashamed of them on that day. And ashamed doesn't mean here like a vague embarrassment at the idea of being a Christian in the staff room. It doesn't mean that. It means rejection and a willful walking away from Jesus. That's what it means. So Jesus is saying to them, and he's saying to us, later is too late that he must be received and followed now. And again, as James Edwards says, the future begins now. That future of the Son of Man coming in the Father's glory with the angels, the future begins now. And Jesus is looking for faithful followers, willing to give everything to him. And he will give all to them now and forever. And to make this statement is utterly ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it probably to you and to me sounds ridiculous on a sunny winter's day in North Belfast when we've got all the modern conveniences of life and we think we're pretty smart and we think we've got this thing cracked even though the foundations of life are shaking around us. So to make this statement is ridiculous unless you are who you say you are and who Mark claims him to be. And I just take us back to verse 1 of chapter 1, the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. This is a ridiculous claim, unless Jesus is who he says he is. And if he is who he said he is, that he is, what else would he say? What else would he demand? Do you think he would demand less? No other person is worth following unless they can promise what Jesus promises, life now and forever. These are hard teachings, but they're also incredibly healing and compelling because it means I don't have to be perfect and have the perfect life. I can follow Jesus and live in his love and mercy and build my life upon that. And in a world that promises us everything but often fails to deliver, he is a real and true way. In a materialistic world where, where what you have and what you acquire means you have some status or something like that, Uh, But actually, the truth is, ends up in our possession, strangling us and stealing our hearts and our joy. In a world like that, he's a way of freedom. In a world of chaos and challenge and violence and pain, his is a way that allows us to endure and to love and to serve beyond ourselves and enter into life forever with him now that will be consummated at the end of all things when all is redeemed and put right. And for those of us, particularly men, who need a purpose, a cause, a fight. The way of Jesus and our faithfulness to him is our noble cause. It is our true north. He is the one who challenges us and helps us pursue goodness and truth and justice and to discipline our lives and to sacrifice for the good of those around us in his name. And I believe Jesus is the way to the best life. And all it takes is losing ours. And gaining his. And it all depends on who you think he is. Well, the last verse is verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some, of, some, of, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So what on earth does this mean? Is Jesus saying some of them won't die until he returns again? So, like, did Jesus get that wrong? Well, he's referring to his death and resurrection, which did happen within the lifetime of his hearers, his disciples. And he's referring to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And Jesus is saying, follow me and life in the kingdom, empowered by the Spirit, begins now. 
You know, it's part of our vineyard heritage. It's what our vineyard heritage is and, and practice is built on, that Jesus announced uh, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, that the kingdom of God was breaking into the present. It was breaking in, in and through him. It was at hand. It was here. It was available. And anyone who wants a part of it, anyone who wants a part of the goodness and mercy and power of the kingdom of God could have it through faith in him. And in his ministry, he demonstrated what it looked like when it came. The dead couldn't stay dead. The sick were made well. Demons had to flee. And men and women were set free from all kinds of different things. And the disciples were blessed to participate in the kingdom and sent out to do kingdom ministry as agents of the kingdom. And they were just to go about and see the kingdom breaking into the present wherever they went. And we are disciples wrapped up in the same thing, if you can believe it or not. And that we, through faith in Jesus' death, are redeemed, made clean, forgiven, and empowered by the Spirit to live in the kingdom and to see it mysteriously manifest among us. And one day it will be here in fullness. Today we experience its reality and long for its full reality. And this is really important, not just because it's why we pray for the sick and, and do lots of other crazy things at the vineyard, but if you are like me, you hear the words of Jesus today and are like, how could I ever do those words? How could I live up to that? How could I follow him on the road? How could I deny myself, pick up a cross, and follow him? I couldn't even do that on my best day. I don't want to deny myself, and I constantly fail, and I'm broken, and I screw it up, and I probably will screw it up again. Well, the good news for you and the good news for me is that Jesus has forgiveness and mercy and love for his disciples and is asking not for perfection, but he's asking for faithfulness and that the kingdom is here in power and that the Holy Spirit, God's personal presence, is in us and available to us, not just to work miracles from time to time, but actually do the miracle work of empowering us to follow Jesus faithfully and deeply and helping us to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus on his way. What if we did that? Do you want to do that? We need to finish. And that's probably enough of the Gospel of Mark for today. Or not enough, depending on perspective. My sense is this, is that we need to experience the Spirit's power. Some of us, you need to give your full yes to Jesus for the first time today. You're at like a, a decision point in time. I talked about that earlier, like sometimes there's a continuous thing and sometimes the scriptures are referencing to that time I did that thing. And today's just your time. It's to come to faith in Jesus or to come back to faith in Jesus. And we want to pray for you. Others of you, I just had this sense, you're, you've been putting trust in something that looked really strong. And it's something that made Jesus and the life that you had in him look really, really weak. And so you've been like drifting away. But all of a sudden, that thing you're putting your trust in has been exposed. There's some cracks and it's starting to show. And it's shaking. And it's an invitation to come back before it's too late. That Jesus and his way is the truth and the life and the only way to the good life. And then others of us, we, we just need to come to the point where this isn't a theology and a scriptures for winners. We've been trying to be a winner. And we just feel broken. 
And we need to meet with Jesus and step out of that and realize that he walked the way ahead of us through suffering in deep humility. And he's looking for faithfulness, not perfection. And he isn't looking for superstars. He's looking for faithful men and women that share his heart, want his kingdom, and will lay down their lives. And he'll do the rest. So come and experience healing. Come and experience mercy and come and experience Spirit's power. Why don't you stand? If you're on the prayer ministry team, you can start coming. I'm going to pray for us and then invite folks forward. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you release us from false teaching that says we follow a triumphalist Savior when we know from your very words to us we follow a suffering servant Savior? And we say you are our power and our strength and our empowering. So come and empower your people. And where we are hearing your words, Lord Jesus, and feeling like failure, we could never do that. We don't do that. Come and empower us now, Holy Spirit. In quiet ways and in dramatic ways, come and empower your people to follow the risen Jesus on the way. To those of us who want to begin following you, Jesus, for the first time, would you just cause that spark by your Holy Spirit to happen? To those of us who've been following you for a long time and we're weary and we're tired and we're empty, come and fill us again. Come, let your power fill us again. Your presence rest on us, within us. Rejuvenate us, revive us. For those who need to work through a process of forgiveness, would you catalyze that? For those of us that have been trusting in something that Lord Jesus has made you look weak, but now is shaking, would you be huge and would you be at the front of our minds? And would you welcome us home to your kingdom? And I pray like you would use these passages and these moments in the life of our church to like brand us or mark us that we have heard the gospel. We've been marked by the gospel and we are on the road with you, Jesus. And that is part of our DNA in a new way. And we embrace all that you have for us. Come and move our blindness to full sight as we journey with you in your kingdom. Let your power come. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.